0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.
1: These are epiphany stories from the Greek word meaning revelation or unveiling. Epiphany is the season that we are in now that we kick off with the Feast of the Epiphany, which traditionally, of course, is is the... day after the 12th, or the Sunday following 12th night, the 12th day of Christmas, and it commemorates the arrival of the three wise men, I said three, I shouldn't have, the wise men from the east whom we presume historically to have been three. Um, That is the, the first of the great epiphany stories, the wise men demonstrating by their act of coming to Jerusalem from far beyond um, Israel and offering gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh which give a true understanding of who this child really is. That is the first of the great unveilings in um, the Epiphany season, but that's not the only one. Last week, Steve took us through the presentation at the temple in the Gospel of Luke and how the um, old man Simeon declared that this and gave thanks to God that this child was the the light to the nations and perhaps Simeon had in mind the verse from Malachi which we read in the opening sentences every Sunday during during Epiphany from the rising of the sun to its setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Perhaps this is what Malachi, uh, rather, this is what um, Simeon had in mind, Malachi, when he declared that this baby would be the light to the Gentiles who will be able to make known to all of the nations of the earth this true God that Israel worshipped. And then, of course, we had the baptism, which was the gospel reading last Sunday, which is a classic epiphany story because after the baptism remember what we have we have the voice of God himself saying this is my son in whom I am well pleased you can't ask for a more authoritative unveiling or revelation than you get in that in that moment and of course today I want to go a little bit beyond that I want to um, speak to stories which may not be so easily or quickly understood as epiphany stories but which i think still are but before we do that may we have a word of prayer almighty god you sent your son to redeem all the nations and all the peoples of the earth back to you you sent him through israel but you intended him for all of us we give you thanks for your holy scripture that illuminates our path in which reveals Your Son for who He was and who He is today. I ask that You open our minds and our hearts to receive Your Scripture and through Your Scripture we come to see Jesus Christ as He really is. We ask all of these things in the name of Your Son, our Redeemer. Amen. The Epiphany story, this little lesson today i call epiphanies old and new and i'd like to start with an epiphany story from long long ago which i like to think of as perhaps the first epiphany story if you have a bible you can read along i'm in exodus chapter three Um, even if you don't have a bible it's easy to follow you all know this story i'm beginning at the first verse When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses! And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is not the first time, of course, that God has spoken to the people in Holy Scripture. He speaks from the very beginning. He spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden when he pronounced to them the consequences of their rebellion and he gave a first glimpse of the thing that he would do that would fix it he spoke to abraham he spoke to job he spoke to abraham numerous times but he spoke to abraham most profoundly when he said go to a place that i will show you and now here he's speaking to moses in a way that is the next step in his um in his process of redemption that's going to bring us all back to the relationship that we broke in the garden of eden and yet there's something about this speaking that's different from those that comes before this one is more personal you notice that the um that that it's first an angel that calls to moses through the through the burning bush, but the angel is almost like you know, angels are always messengers in the scriptures, and it's like the angel calls him over, but then turns it over to God, and it's God who's speaking to Moses through the burning bush and not speaking in a way that like is a, a command, a, the part of the passage that we didn't read is a conversation and it's God making a case to Moses about how you need to be my representative with Pharaoh and you need to bring the people out of Egypt because I have seen their suffering and I want to redeem it. I want to bring them back to the promised land. It's a conversation in a way that we don't see before. But there's no question that this is God because he commands Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. This is... You are in the presence of the Almighty, and Moses knows it. He doesn't even dare look up. I don't know how many of you saw the movie a few years ago. I think it was called Exodus, Gods and Kings. It was the one that cast Christian Baal as Moses, and there was some good stuff in it. I I really liked the crossing of the Red Sea. I thought the way that that, that they presented that, the movie maker made it... uh, made it more of a natural phenomenon than an than a than a psychological phenomenon or a, a, a miracle but it was a miracle that very well could have been the way that it actually played out but if you remember the burning bush scene it's it's somewhat deeply disappointing or it was to me it starts off well enough Moses is there on the mountainside and it's a driving rain and I kind of like that that little feature and and he suffers a, a a rock slide, and then a mud slide, and he winds up at the foot of the mountain, covered in mud almost up to his face and he comes to, and he realizes that the bush is burning, and then there 's this this child who walks up he 's like a ten year old boy he 's a little bit of an insufferable little you know little jerk you know and and they have this conversation that doesn 't relate very well to the conversation that Exodus three describes, but then Moses, from you know his covering in mud, says, who are you? And the kid says, I am, and then walks off. Now, as I said, to me, that's deeply disappointing. It doesn't really illuminate anything about that moment that is as profound as the Scripture makes it. But I think it gets one thing right. It shows that there was a... Uh, an exchange going on and it was really a one-to-one exchange rather than the voice from on high or the voice from in the cloud or or some sort of it was more personal than that and I think that that is what makes the burning bush such an interesting story and such a significant story but again the question is what does it have to do with Jesus and is Jesus present in this story well some of the um, some of the theologians say that he absolutely was present in this story, and I don't have the theological chops to say whether they're right or they're wrong. But there are some interesting aspects to this that I think clearly point to Jesus and clearly point to who Jesus is and uh, and is for us. Notice the naming. Um, who are you? I am what I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, that sounds strange in the English language. I'm told that in the original Hebrew and actually also in the translated Greek, which was the version of Exodus that the first century Jews would have read because they didn't read Hebrew anymore. They read Greek. They had a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And the, the verb used there, to be, is more like just God is not simply saying I I exist, I am. He is making a claim that He is all of existence. He is all of being. The only true existence is the existence of God, and all other existence is just a, a, a bare shadow of it, a walking shadow, as Shakespeare put it. All of life is a walking shadow. It's temporary. It's here and then it's gone, but God is he is. It's the, he's the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And notice how many times in the New Testament scriptures in the gospels Jesus makes these I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. Think about all the times that he says that and we are supposed to. I think we're supposed to remember what God said to Moses: "I am not just that I exist, but that I am all of being." And Jesus said, "I am one with the Father, and He is in me." These are very specific claims, which I think tie the Gospels back to the um, back back to uh, uh, th- this story. Now. Also notice the very interesting aspect of the burning bush itself. We have two images that are superimposed. We have a bush which is of course just wood and it has a lifespan like all other things it eventually turns to dust. It has its life cycle, it grows, it dies, it rots or perhaps as sagebrush it burns up like in a California wildfire. But we also have uh, the image of the bush and the tree which recurs in all of Christ's ministry where he invokes bushes and trees as sort of a a symbol of the kingdom of God on earth. But it is an earthly symbol. And then we have the fire which is over and over in, in scripture is a symbol for God. When the Israelites follow God out of Egypt into the wilderness, they're following a pillar of fire. When the Holy Spirit comes to the early church on the Feast of Pentecost, it comes in tongues of fire. We have the God image of the fire superimposed over the earthly image of the bush, and that is, I suspect, a perfect metaphor for the incarnation. That is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow God come down into the imperfect corporeal um corruptible present that is here and then is gone all, all of the two and, and notice that the even though the, the, the bush was burning the bush was not consumed that's right there you know the bush is not burned up by the fire this is say some of the theologians this is Jesus we remember that in John's prologue he wrote that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and this is another example of that I am has become the bush has become something in this world and the world isn't destroyed by it Moses doesn't want to look on it but there it is and it doesn't destroy the bush in John's prologue the word he uses for word is the Greek word logos which literally means word but it has multiple layers of meaning, sort of like an onion with all, of its, with all of its layers. The onion layer that has the deepest theological meaning in Logos is a sense of the mind of God. If you want to say it poetically, John was writing that rationality, the ultimate rationality which created the universe, it was clear that, that 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 Jesus was there when this universe was created, that this ultimate rationality became a human person, and that's sort of the same image that we get in the burning bush. This God has become something in 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 humanity and among us and is dwell, dwelling among us. So, in a very real sense, I think that this burning bush story is an epiphany story because it points us toward the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, this incarnation in human flesh and blood and dwelling among us, being there with us and having this very natural human interaction. And maybe the filmmaker uh, in in putting the image of God in this 10-year-old boy was trying to hint at this being the son himself this being the second person of the trinity making his appearance and speaking to moses and of course it's kind of hard to make that as a movie we can read it in the scripture and sort of comprehend it but that is i think the epiphany story that is in the burning bush Frank Limehouse used to say that all ho- holy scripture ultimately points toward Christ and he often illustrated that with Old Testament readings I remember the one that he that he um, that he hammered home more than once was the story of naaman the Syrian general who was the leper who came to Israel because his um, his little Jewish um, housekeeper servant had convinced him that the one place that he could go to be cured was to go to to go to Israel and and Frank referred to that as a gospel in embryo and I think here is an example of a gospel in embryo I don't know how many of you paid attention last Sunday to the, um, the hymn in procession hymn 616 hail to the Lord's anointed great David's greater son hail in the time appointed his reign on earth begun it's a beautiful hymn with great music I won't inflict upon you my attempts to sing it, but great music and uh, great lyrics. But if you look down at the hymn notes at the bottom of the page, you will have seen that it is a hymn that sets to music Psalm 72. Well, Psalm 72, according to the theologians, was written by King David about his son, uh, the future King Solomon. And yet there can be no doubt that this hymn we're singing is not about the about Solomon, the son of David, but about Jesus Christ, the son of God, great David's greater son. So there's an example, I think, of the gospel in embryo in that hymn, in that psalm. And the, it's very appropriate that we would sing that at, at Epiphany. There's another story I want to talk about that's an Epiphany story that is... Um, appears in all three of the synoptic gospels for no particular reason i'm going to read the one out of luke's gospel i'm in luke chapter nine if you want to find it starting at verse 28 now about eight days after these sayings he took with him peter and john and james and went up on the mountain to pray and as he was praying the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As He was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the story of the Transfiguration. It's not called that in Luke, it's called that in Matthew and Mark. It appears in Matthew and Mark and Luke in pretty much the same form. Interesting that we read this story during Lent. It's a gospel reading during Lent because it's appropriate because this was the moment when According to the theologians, Jesus had wrapped up most of his earthly ministry in ministering to the rest of everyone, and he was turning his face toward Jerusalem. He was turning his face toward the cross and the tomb and the resurrection, and so this was the great transition moment. And it's appropriate that at that great transition moment, Jesus would appear on the mountain, the holy mountain, with Moses and Elijah sort of the big three of Holy Scripture. I mean, Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. And the law and the prophets was the way first century Jews referred to their religion and their Holy Scripture. It was the law and the prophets. Everything was summed up in the law and the prophets. And here was Jesus with them, the the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, all three of them, and then the The mist coming down, the cloud, and and God speaking to them out of the cloud. Notice the same words, essentially the same words, spoken to them by God from the cloud as was spoken at the baptism that we read last week. This is my son. There can be no more clear unveiling, no more clear revelation of who he was than in that moment. Now, I had never thought of this as an epiphany story. Again, we don't read it at epiphany, but... Last Sunday we had uh, FaceTime with our German grandchildren, our grandchildren who lived for the short time in Germany. And the six-year-old, six-and-a-half-year-old told me about the Bible story they had heard at church that morning and he told this story. He said, you know, they were up on the mountain and the cloud came down and then there was Jesus with Moses and Emmanuel. He kind of didn't quite get that part right. But, you know, he got it though. I mean, he understood and I, I asked my daughter. I said, "Do you, do you actually? Does your church read that during Epiphany?" And she said, "Well, you know, we're, it's, it's called the American Protestant Church, and they're only semi-liturgical, and they you know, their lectionary is pretty much just, you know, whatever, whatever moves the preacher." But in a profound way, this is a story that absolutely belongs in Epiphany. I mean, it, I'm not going to. I'm not going to lobby to take it out of the lectionary readings in Lent and move it, but it's an epiphany story because that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is being unveiled for who he is. Now, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, just before this event, um, the Gospel writer gives the famous exchange between uh, Jesus and Peter. Remember, Jesus asked the disciples who do the crowd say I am and Peter answers well some say that you're Moses and some say that you're Elijah and some say that you're John the Baptist and Jesus responded who do you say that I am and remember what Peter's famous answer was you were the Christ the son of the living God Peter declares to Jesus his recognition of who Jesus Christ is and then we have this Transfiguration story, which pretty much confirms it. I mean, it. How much more confirmation can you get? And we, we got a sense of it at the end of this reading, but in Matthew and Mark, it's explicit, where Jesus charges them, "Do not tell anybody about this until after my resurrection," because it's only in the context of the resurrection that we can understand the story of the transfiguration. The, the reason that Jesus is there with Moses and with Elijah is the, it's the resurrection that seals this new covenant which confirms that he is the, um, uh, he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so uh, the profundity of this as an epiphany story I think cannot be overstretched. And to go back to John's prologue for a moment, remember, John wrote, um, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then he wrote, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Now, John doesn't tell the transfiguration story in his gospel, even though he was there. It's, it, you know, he was one of the three apostles who was up there on the mountain. But notice, that's the same thing as, as, as Luke wrote. They saw him in his glory. And there was John saying that in his in his prologue. We beheld his glory. So in another way, John is confirming, I believe, even though he doesn't tell that story, he's confirming this transfiguration that in that moment they saw Jesus as who he really was. He was the Son of God. He was God himself. He was transfigured. That's the literal meaning of transfiguration. They saw him in a way that was heavenly rather than the way that was earthly and in a way that they would not see again until after the resurrection which gets kicks us back to the some of the classes that we had resurrection stories back eight months ago. So um, thank you to Mac Jones my grandson my six-year-old grandson for sort of unveiling before me the the real significance of the uh, transfiguration as a as a uh, an epiphany story I'd like to close in the few minutes that we have left we have yes we have a few minutes I'd like to read a short passage that is not really an epiphany story, but which all of you know, especially those of you who have been to an Episcopal funeral recently, you probably heard it. It comes from the revelation to St. John in chapter 22, beginning at the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is not really epiphany, but it definitely is the end game that all of Holy Scripture has brought us to. The moment that began with the brokenness in the Garden of Eden is being... Fulfilled at the end of God's plan to redeem humanity through Jesus Christ. It is being fulfilled in the moment when heaven and earth become one and the dwelling place of God is with all of us. And there's no difference between heaven and earth any longer because the old earth, the old creation has all gone away. It's been superseded just as surely as the law and the prophets were superseded by the coming of the fulfillment of Christ. And so I think that really, while all of these epiphany stories point to the resurrection, point to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, so also does everything in Holy Scripture point to this moment, the moment when the dwelling place of God will be with man. And there will be no more burning bush because the, what it is, what, what's destructible about this creation will no longer be the case. God will be here with us, and not just in the, the, the form of His Son, here for a few years and then ascended into heaven and promising for all of us eternal life, but actually God with us, which is, I guess maybe Mac was a little bit right, because that's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. So those are the epiphany stories. And with that, I think that we can all say thanks be to God. Amen. To <laughs> Any thoughts or comments or suggestions or, or brickbats? <laughs> Coffee, you look thoughtful. Well, no, I'm just, I, I, I fall back on the, the, the kind of humorous thing that when we discuss the great I, I am who I am, uh, it, it's gone now, I think. But there's a little country church on the road to Camp McDowell, the name of which is the Great I Am's Temple. The Great I Am Temple. And it's about the size of this room. It was about the size of this room. Some of our hymns refer to that that moment, the Great I Am. Um, and it, it, it is... I note that in the translation that I've read here, this... Um, this is the Bible that we passed out a few years ago. It's the English standard version, the ESV. And I noticed that when in the translation it's rendered in all caps. God says, "I am who I am, and that's in all caps and nowhere else is in all caps anywhere in that in that story. But um, I am who I am, the great I am, the great statement to... Moses about the nature of God, the the, the indestructible, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow when nothing else in this world is. Charles?
0: I had a thought, John, about about that when you were initially talking about the burning bush and you were also comparing it to the pillar of fire in Exodus and the tongues of fire in Pentecost. But you know, just a few weeks ago, it seems like we had um, a lectionary reading where people are asking John the Baptist if he's the Christ, and he says, um, you know, there's one coming who's mightier than I, right. and uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his willing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, floor to gather. Yeah. The wheat was his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, if God's in that bush already, and if that's really holy ground and you've got to take your shoes off, and it stands to reason that, that, that the explanation for why the bush doesn't burn up is there's nothing there that's chaff that needs to be consumed. And so, uh, you know, I think Christ really is manifest in that fire in the same way that John the Baptist is talking about what he's ultimately going to do. Uh,
1: Awesome. Well done.
0: That
1: that is that is really excellent. There's no chaff in that bush. There's nothing but the purity. Well, thank you all for being here, and thank you for bundling up and coming out in the in the sleet and the and uh, the cold. And I wish all of you a great rest of today and a great holiday weekend and um, a great rest of Epiphany and then the great days of Lent that lead us inexorably back to turning our minds to the cross and the empty tomb. Thank you all. Thank you. you.
0: You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.